0: Like Hello and welcome back to the So What Are You podcast. Today's episode is with Farid Holakui, a clinical psychologist, host of podcast in session with Dr. Farid Holakui and son of Dr. Farhang Holakui, who is a renowned psychologist known for his Iranian radio show, Radio Hamra. That being said, we were lucky enough to spend a recent Sunday afternoon with Fadi to hear his story and also gain some insights based on his many years spent as a psychologist, often working with first-generation parents and their children. We discussed his early days at Beverly Hills High School, where 30% of the school was Persian, not feeling pressured by his family to be very Persian in culture and in language, and his initial passion to become a physician and how he transitioned into his career as a clinical psychologist. We then get into some of the juicy topics, like the most common themes of therapy sessions with the Persian population and parents, the well-intentioned but nonetheless damaging control issue present in Persian and other cultures, and the concept of perfectionism and how at the end of the day, 99% of everything will blow over and be okay. Want to support us? Please give us a rating on your podcast streaming platform of choice. We would be eternally grateful. Either way, enjoy the show. Well, actually, like, I guess... Where were you born? Like, where does your story begin?
1: (laughs) In Santa Monica, California, which is funny. I literally live right now a few miles away from that. And most of my life or all of my life, I've lived in Southern California in a fairly small when you think about an area. I mean, I was kind of maybe like an hour drive from where I live now for several years. But most of it has been in Southern California. But both of my parents were immigrants from Iran who came a few years before that. Uh, my father, a few years earlier, he was doing kind of like a, a foreign exchange type of a thing where he wanted to get a degree in Utah, but a PhD in sociology, eventually. Uh, but his plan was to go back to Iran. And so because of the Islamic revolution, things were not okay for Baha'is. and My family is Baha'i. And so they came, but they got married in the United States, but they had met in Iran. So my brother who was a few years older than me. He was born first, obviously, and then I was born so yeah, born into a very Iranian family. My first language was Barsi, which is uh, interesting, yeah. or Persian. And that was kind of interesting because, thankfully, I hope I don't have an accent. I don't think I do when I speak English. And that's kind of what their thinking was. So I learned English mostly from TV at the beginning, like Sesame Street and those kinds of things. It's so, a shout out to all that. Big Bird. <laughs> Big Bird, yeah. That's things, right. Yeah. And now my you know language is definitely like most things, use it or lose it. So my Farsi understanding is fairly good. I actually have clients as a therapist who speak just in Farsi to me, but I'll usually answer them in English. But speaking, I definitely don't have the confidence.
2: Yeah, I feel the same way. I've thought about that too in terms of uh, like having a client who could speak Farsi to me, I would understand. But as long as I could respond in English, because I feel like I can articulate significantly better.
1: Yeah, and that means the client obviously has a certain level of comprehension that will be able to hear, understand you. Uh, people often feel so much more comfortable in that language. Like emotion is tied into that. in fact, like you have to try to translate in your head what you're feeling to say it. You know, if you think about it, there's already a translation from what you feel to putting into words, putting into language. Yeah. But then if you have to add that added layer of translating into a different language, it, it becomes so much harder that I think it takes away. So it's something I'll explore with clients. If they say, well, I'm much more comfortable in you know, speaking Persian, you know, we'll talk about that. How do you feel? And sometimes I'll let them know, maybe I, I can find you. A therapist who's farsi speaking where that might be a better match so it's something we we explore at times what i find interesting is this happens so many times that i'm kind of expecting it so they'll start speaking in farsi like, you know my my teenage son all the Farsi is like, duh, 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 for a few minutes and then i'll answer ask a question in english and then unconsciously they switch to english it's so funny like and then i'll say oh so how long has he been born like um, about four, and like, then they answer, which is shows <laughs> how you know we're so, um, you know, things yeah. are so such so, social creatures, and things are contagious. Like unconsciously, they switch to match what I'm doing. You know, it's it's interesting because like I don't want to tell them, oh, you speak better in Persian, so switch to that. But I want them to be comfortable, so I might bring it up.
2: Totally.
0: But yeah. So I'm actually super curious. Most Persians probably know, but like your dad is like a figure, and like the Iranian and worldwide community as it relates to, like, psychology, mental health. I'll let you speak to it more potentially. And he speaks, like, Farsi, and everything is done in Farsi. So I'm curious, like, was that something that was expected of you to be, like, similar to your dad in terms of, like, speaking Farsi and, like, being full of this Iranian culture? Like, what was that like?
1: That's, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, my father, yeah, he's a therapist, but, like, kind of much more than that. He's had a radio show for, like, Gosh, over twenty years now, where he like takes calls and you know has he has all sorts of like you know CDs and, and DVDs, which are kind of like, but now we're trans, translating those into different types of tech, technology that's so easier to access. But so he's like a very big figure, as you're saying, in the Iranian community, mental health, um, just all sorts of things. And yeah, he does everything in in Persian, and it obviously speaks very well. And so. There is that expectation. I still like, I mean, if you go to my Instagram page, I get comments in Persian. And sometimes it even is like write something in English or you know, uh put a book that's in, in Persian or translated or something. And so there is that expectation from, from some. Um and so I you know, I wish I could do that as, as well. Like like we were saying earlier, my Persian is not good enough to feel like I can handle talking about complex subjects in, in Persian, yeah. it's just not possible for me but yeah i, just, I mean I, I felt that but i think at the end of the day it's kind of more being myself it's like in so many ways when we talk about identity it's so many things language can be part of that too and so i have to do me like which is in english that's how i feel like i can be proficient so there was some of that and i felt it before for people or the expectation is there that okay he speaks persian so well and you're his son so they expect that to so am right Someone once put like a YouTube video of me giving like a talk somewhere. And then some there's a few comments like, oh, this is like, you know, people being upset. Like, why is he speaking English? And like, he should be speaking in Persian. This is like, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that comes up. I felt that and it still is there from people that also don't know me and then learn about me because, you know, they know my father. And they learn about me. Oh, so he's going to be speaking in Persian and then not. So that that's definitely come up.
0: How about pressure from like a parental side I don't know what's the right way to say it but like growing up as like a Persian American it's fairly common for parents to you know want to put you in Farsi school and like we we went through it to up to second grade actually so you know reading and writing up to second Thank grade you. Um, and I'm curious like did you kind of go through that as well like I think it's really interesting like the enforcement of like you know language and culture in general so i'm just curious like what your experience was in your you know situation with your dad and your family
1: yeah i, mean, I think it's interesting maybe like the uh, first second grade like the magic number because i think i stopped around then too like sure. I, I took up uh, persian classes um you know it was like one night a week like someone come to our house we have homework i remember my grandma yeah. uh very sweet she would like ring a bell uh for me and my brother to go and like kind of especially <laughs> practice with us or do that's so a she, yeah. like, i felt it from her probably even more and then also teaching us like prayers and things for Baha'i faith in persian was also like she did more but i would see that and in my house the persian language was almost pretty exclusive you know over the years it would change or so much you know my brother might speak in english to Definitely to each other and to like our parents and things, but there's definitely a lot of that. But the pressure was never this strong thing, which you do see in a lot of families. Like, you have to, why are you speaking in English or you have to keep living this or the tradition and the you know, culture? It was never like that kind of uh, shove down our throats feeling from either of our parents. Got it. Um, but I see that a lot with families I work with because, you know, culture, obviously there's tradition. It's not just about that. It's also about living life the right way. And parents in general, especially as their kids get older, there's this feeling of, Losing them, you know, like they're becoming more independent, Mm -hmm. they're become more also like, you know, finding their own way. And then some of that, especially for children of immigrants, is they obviously start to acculturate to like the culture of where they're living. And so for parents, it doesn't just feel like, oh, they like this kind of music now. It feels like I'm losing my child, they're going away from Mm -hmm. me. They're also very commonly except they're going to be more immoral, because that's always the common. You know, assumption is like, we are doing it yeah. right. They're doing it wrong. That's part of culture. And so you hear that always, oh, my kid's going to be like these American kids. And that's like always yeah. a negative way. Um, but I always try to tell parents, like, look, if your child wants to do well in America, they need to also adjust to this American culture. So if you want them to yeah. do well, survive, like be successful, uh, you know, you need to let them go in that way, which can be hard. And it doesn't mean you're going to lose them. It just means like this is going to be part of who they are. Um, and, and even like the language can be an easy way. Like if they spoke like you spoke, they wouldn't be successful in school. Like that's just the real of it. Or if they you know, had the yeah. comprehension you have. So we have to give them that space to explore that. But thankfully I didn't have that feeling of like, you better like hold this or you should you know, speak in Farsi more or anything like that.
0: I wonder if that like has an impact on your general like relationship with Iranian culture. Like for me, at least if I'm told or enforced to do something, you know, I mean, a lot of people you kind of have a bad association with it, especially if it's not like the funnest thing in the world or the something that you really want to do. I wonder if like that may have some impact on like how you interact with like Iranian culture today.
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think that's yeah, you're right, it's a human thing. Like, if we're forced to do almost anything, it becomes less enjoyable, or you might not want to do it. And yeah, um, there's definitely like a Kind of trajectory or pattern I think a lot of people go through when you're kids, like very little, it's like what your parents do is like the best, and that's amazing. So you're all about your culture, like your culture of heritage and whatnot. But then when you get into teenagers, usually there is a lot of finding yourself. There's a lot of I'm not my parents in general, even if it's not cultural, it's just like figure that out so there could yeah. be rejection. Like, don't even like oh, like I hate everything for my culture, this is so stupid, and then this, and for parents can be really alarming like, oh my god, you used to love this, now you hate it um but generally what i've seen is then as you get older you come back to it more i mean you know everyone goes on their own journey so it doesn't mean you'll come back completely but even i've seen that myself or when i was you know younger than teenagers i was kind of like like don't like this stuff but as i've gotten older i feel much more connected to persian music to different things of the persian culture so yeah i think it's better that if you give your children the chance to go through that they likely will come back to it but as you're saying Faraz, if you I think push them too much. They might actually never want to come back because they'll always associate it with this like, thing that they're being forced to do in that pressure. Mm-hmm. So they might not come back to it at all.
2: I definitely agree on that. And because I think a big part of my process was being able to separate my parents and family and Persian culture, and then also the faith in itself, those were all in each other. And so it was hard to kind of, have relationships with each one separately um, because it just kind of got thrown together. And so I think a big part of my figuring it out or healing uh, was going through like my program uh, for school and understanding how my culture differs from the religion and how that differs from my parents as individual human beings (laughs) and that those are all different. Um, And to be able to separate those made it easier for me to have relationships with each of them um, but when it was all thrown into one, it it was hard to understand where each piece was coming from. And like if my parents say this is a rule, is that our household rule? Is that our cultural rule? Is that our religious rule? And in in my experience growing up, I just thought it was just like an everything rule. So this is like this is being Persian and Baha'i in my family. And that was just all the same. Um, when that's not true. <laughs> and those are different.
1: Yeah, you don't know. And I think I had that too where I wouldn't really know if something was a Persian thing or a Baha'i thing, especially because a lot of yep. the Baha'i things I was hearing were in Persian, so I was like, Wait, yeah, I didn't know which one it was. Sometimes I remember having that experience too of not knowing, it's like, Oh, it's just and it's just a thing, and I think that's something everyone goes through in a way like your family, is just like that's just the way it is, and it's not so you get older till you realize that, even sadly, sometimes people who have like abusive parents will sometimes be like, Yeah, I didn't realize like it didn't have to be that way until I was like much older. Mm-hmm. Um, so I right. think like all these different intersecting things, like each family has its own culture at the end of the day, right?
2: Yeah.
1: So, uh, which includes all of those things and their own influences and a bunch of other factors. And so it's hard to, be, as you get older, you tease apart, like what was our thing? What was coming from these different influences?
0: I mean, one guess for why it happens like that is like, maybe you just, I guess it's just more life experience. You've seen more scenarios where it's like Persian or Baha'i or whatever the thing is and you can like, you can start to like separate and like, like, Oh, I can like connect these trends and these, this is related to Persian. This is not, I mean, even for me, like when I look at my experience and I look at like some of my Persian friends who are not Baha'i, it helps clarify a lot for me. I'm like, Oh wow. Like my parents actually aren't at all like very uh, traditional in their Iranian sense, they're actually like extremely progressive in in this in the like Iranian sense <laughs> and in the Bahai sense, all senses. But like you have to, I don't know. Having those comparisons helps you like tease it out. And if you don't do that, it it's just super complicated. The whole parents plus culture plus religion plus other things because I feel like. Naturally, you're just going to be like anti that whole bucket, yeah, which means you might be like saying no to stuff that you might actually like mm-hmm. as well. And I don't know what's the solution to
1: that, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, it's not gonna be an easy one, but I think it's you know, it's part of like the development as, as children, even first when they're you know, kids around two or three, they start saying no, and part of that, no, no is. And the, you know, parents would like, it doesn't matter what I say; they say no first, and that's why they even wander. They'll even do the thing, but they just like say no. It's part of like saying, "I'm not you." They're realizing there's that differentiation, like, "I'm not you." And then in the teenagers, you see, like even an explosion of that, of like, "I'm just not you." And so, I think parents have to be ready for that. That it doesn't mean they're rejecting it and rejecting it forever. It's just like a thing they have to go through, where they have to try to find themselves. And part of finding themselves is for saying, "I'm not you." Let me find who I am. And it might even right. really come back to a lot of the things that you, you know, are incorporating or have in your life. Uh, but as I mentioned before, if you push it, shove it down their throat, they're more likely to reject it and rebel harder against those things that you try to push at them. So um, I don't think there's an easy solution because I think it's get, it does get complicated. Another thing parents always have a challenge with is as kids enter adolescence, their peers become far more significant to them more than their parents. So kid, parents are like, oh, and you know, he was 11, he would come to the movies with me and couldn't wait. Now he's like 13, it's like the last thing he'd want to do, like, you know, in the world, like he only wants to see his friends and doesn't want to see us. And, and it's tough, the parents can feel rejected. You know, The parents can feel like, does my kid not love me or want to be around me? But it's just part of their development is that things obviously are going to keep changing and evolving and the more we can allow that space for it to happen, the better, the more we try to force it. No, we still have to be close and you still have to come here with me or talk to me about this stuff. Uh, it usually actually hurts the relationship more than
0: anything. Agreed. Maybe moving on, I i would like to hear, what high school did you go to?
1: So I went to Beverly Hills High School, but for just okay. two years. Um, okay. It was actually newer then, been that's a long time ago, but uh, there was like a proficiency exam that you take, similar to GED, I don't know exactly how you'd say it's different, but uh, like a, a high school equivalency test. And so I did that in my sophomore year and then went to community college. So I was only there like ninth grade and 10th grade.
2: Why did you do that?
1: Yeah, that's a good, I mean, you guys have a few hours. Yeah. There's
2: there's
1: a lot of reasons if I think about it. I, My parents got divorced around that time or like a little before that. And I think I wasn't doing as well academically. I historically had been a very good student, but I think I kind of I think I was not taking care of myself or emotionally was not aware of things I was going through. And so I was not doing mm-hmm. that well in high school. And then, I mean, it was really okay, but so it kind of was like a good way out too because I think I recognize, you know, I don't think I'm going to get into a great school
0: um, mm. if, I, if
1: I was a senior. So this strikes I start early. I think I also liked, you know, to, if I can be honest, I think there was this like, oh, it'll be cool. I'm going to college at 16. I'll look like this. Yeah. this kid. You know, I think I something about that it was definitely appealing too. So yeah, that's kind of what I did, and I, and I think socially, you know, I was okay, but I was, you know, didn't feel great socially. So it wasn't like I was like loving high school and like having the best time. Well, I was going to miss it.
0: What does Beverly High High School look like, or what did it look like at that point, point? and what was your experience?
1: Exactly what you're probably imagining. Uh, although, I mean, some of it's true to every high school. There was so a few things. One is I had an interesting culture shock moving from the city I was in was like a very suburby like predominantly white neighborhood, like where it was like, other than my brother it was like one or two Iranian students in the school, you know, kind of place, uh, or maybe a few more than that. And then when we moved to, you know, I was in eighth grade, so middle school, but to Beverly Hills, I, it was like a culture shock. Cause it was like 30% Persian, maybe even like 40%. And I think my elementary um, school was even more than that. So I learned wow. Persian curse words, in like eighth grade, from the other Persians, like my family didn't say a lot of the words, I didn't know them, so I was right. learning all these like curse words, and even like the non-Persian kids knew the bad words, yeah. like which was like crazy. So it was almost like weird culture wow. shock uh, that I experienced in eighth grade of being much more immersed in a Persian community uh, than I had. That's been. Very yeah, it was really interesting. So you know, there it, obviously that the the day it's going to be like many schools, but there definitely was more wealth than a typical school than your average school so i remember yeah in high school kids would be having really you know beamers and nice cars and rolling up to like the student you know the it's like the student parking lot like the cars were like 10 times nicer than the faculty parking lot which is like not <laughs> i don't think it's a good thing at all yeah. Um, yeah, but so you were seeing all these like and i remember like prada bags were really big then i remember for the girls prada mm. bags was a thing that i was hearing a little Little product triangle. Like that was a thing, like having a product back, It was like, I don't even know if. It was because they wouldn't get the, anyway, but
0: uh, I don't, I shouldn't even show my knowledge of luxury. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, basically this was Ida's dream school.
2: Okay. No, I would have died.
1: Yeah. I, it was, it was, it was definitely not, it was interesting for me to say the least, but yeah. Like how you, you know, people, and like, again, these are things that people care about at all schools and social media. Now there wasn't social media back then, but you know, how you dress and what you wear and things. Like that. And I, you know, and I remember getting caught up into it too. Like, there was a gene company called Big Star, which became kind of like, and like someone would like, mm. someone bought it for me. So I could, it was, you know, there was a the thing of getting a pair of those jeans, you know, became like cool. So it was just uh, yeah, I mean, you get, it was a lot of that stuff was definitely there, but you know, then typical uh, high school. And again, there was a lot of Persians in my high school too. So that was there like 30%. Mm. Sadly, I think you see the segregation. I mean, you know, we're talking about 20 plus years ago, but still, uh, I don't know how it is now. We had you know, segregation based on race is so common. And I think many schools we see that. So that was definitely there too. I think there was, there was something called the Persian tree. I think it was for after school, everyone would hang out by this tree. And I was like, I'm not mistaken. Yeah. It was like Persian tree. Like they would all hang out in one area. So um, it was an interesting experience to say the least. I think I did. A, and I don't know if I would have been happy in any high school. I mean, there's like insecurities I had and, and yeah. things that, you know, so I wasn't like, I don't think I would have thrived somewhere else. Even there, maybe there's more Persian, it was easier than if I was somewhere where I would have been even more of a like minority or outcast in right. that way as far as culturally, you know. So yeah, but it was it was interesting. I mean, I, I don't know if I think it was like the ideal place, but yeah, that's
0: basically did, did it have any impact on your closeness or opinion on like being Persian or Persian culture, like in a good or bad way? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I
1: think I learned like I got closer in some ways. In the high school, you see a lot of, like, and I, again, these are things I don't know if it was only at that school, but, like, you know, kids are cheating on tests and things, and it's very common. They have systems, and they kind of, you know, like, you saw a lot of that. like So the corrupt side, which I think, uh, not to generalize, but I think uh, can be part of Persian culture. It's kind of like, find, you know, they might say, like, being smart or strong, but it kind of yeah. has this, like, the rules are made to be broken kind of a thing. So yeah, I remember yeah. seeing a lot of that, which was surprising. I think I was very good at two shoes, kind of like a thing, but now I actually can, I'll acknowledge, like, I don't know, uh, you know, maybe it's like recorded. But I don't th- I remember one time I did have a cheat sheet. Someone printed me a cheat sheet for Bio, And I actually remember I got, I got caught. I don't know if I've ever talked, like mentioned it. What? The, it was, uh, I was doing a makeup exam and the teacher, I'll never forget. I think his name was Mr. Knowlton. And he was really like, he was a really nice guy. But I'd come to do a makeup exam and someone printed me like this little I don't even know how people cheat now. It's probably so advanced now. It's like a, a hologram <laughs> shows up in the middle of the class and tells them. I'm sure. But um yeah, so I remember he yeah, he he's like and he was like uh, yeah, you can you can stop taking the test. Though. I was like, Wait, what is He's like, yeah, he you knows that. Like, and I was like, and then because I, I think I had it like between my legs. I don't know what I was exactly. I probably uh, was very good at it, but uh, an experience. So I yeah, just, clearly. Like, I just don't want to be like those Persians cheated. And I, so I, I, don't, I wasn't doing it often, but I definitely have to acknowledge I did it that uh, time. Not not my proudest training moment, but um, yeah. But I think you saw I saw a lot of that side, like I, you know, and not very kind. I also think. Um, you know, we talk a lot about young people being entitled, but I think the materialism contributed to that there that I felt like there was a way people would talk about people like money, you know, class was very important, like who had money, who didn't everyone, you know, yeah. which you see in society in general trying to act like they have it even if they don't and, you know, like I remember one, you know, kids like not wanting their parents to pick them up because if their cars weren't as nice, like some of that, you know it wasn't like a, yeah. you know, was wouldn't like say everyone was doing that, but you just feel that pressure that there was a lot of the rich kids definitely got to be more popular. And so you felt that. So I feel like that was something that I think a lot of things that might be at other high schools might've been amplified there, like that kind of
0: stuff. Yeah. I think, I mean, I've definitely noticed going to school in Southern California and having a ton of Persian friends in, in Southern California, they, they, they do have a different feel to them. Like they, they, a lot of the stuff you were just saying, like, Taking the opportunity, finding the deal, like I sense a different Persian culture in Southern California for sure, and I, it's probably I would assume closer to like real Persian culture here in the Bay Area. Obviously, we have that stuff as well, but
2: it's a very different vibe.
1: Yeah, I've, you know, although I've heard people say, you know, you're saying if I was like more like real. It could be. I've heard people say LA Persians are like unlike Persians anywhere else in the world. And so <laughs> I've heard that from many people. I don't know. I don't Just
0: know. their own breed.
1: brings So I don't know, but um, exactly how it mm. covers, there's truth to that. But yeah. And I mean, even what you mentioned, you know, it, it does bring up this, like, what does it mean real Persian? Like, you know, there's uh yeah, it's a lot of different things. And like, you know, it, and even I think because so many people left before the revolution and then they haven't been there, I think Persian culture, Iranian culture in Iran has evolved. I think sadly, right. In the best ways, but so, it's probably even different from that. And, and then there's all, you know, there's obviously intermingling because people still do leave. And then they, so culture is a very Correct. dynamic type of a process. It's not like one type of, you know, one monolith, like everyone's the same. But yeah, I yep. think LA like Persians have a, there's a certain feel, let's just say.
0: That's <laughs> uh, right. But I love them. I love you. Uh, yes. Matt, yeah. Matt, Ramin, all <laughs> you guys. These
2: are all his <laughs> friends from LA. Yeah, there you go. Shouts out. <laughs>
0: But I'm actually really interested in hearing about your journey to like mental health and psychology and all that because obviously, as you know, we're very much in that field, very much care about it. And I'm just curious, like, where did that come from? And you know, what were the were there influences from your dad? Was it something you discovered on your own? Like, what was your journey to going into mental health?
1: Yeah, I mean, some of a lot of that. Obviously, my father. Uh, being
0: in the mental health field, that definitely had an impact.
1: Although I wanted to be a, a medical doctor from um, a very young age. Shout out Payband. Uh,
0: <laughs> Shout
1: out Payband. Who's a, a medical doctor? Uh, the real kind of doctor now that I have a PhD. If that's like the real doctor, like, then like the real <laughs> kind of doctor. But, exactly. Um, but yeah, I, I always actually wanted to be, I was pre med. I, I think I, you know, the cliche way of saying it, I always wanted to do something that helped people. Like I, I had that type of a um I think personality and mentality. Also being raised my family and being raised Baha'i, there was emphasis on serving others that was there that I think yeah. made that a focus. I also, you know, I wonder about this too. I'm like it, the reinforcement is so strong. I think for every community, but in the Persian community, if you say you want to be a doctor, like you just I mean it's like you already graduated, like they're throwing you part Yeah. Out. Oh yay, good job. Like, <laughs> Literally. So you already feel like I think there was so much reinforcement there. So I wonder how much it was my own wanting and the kind of that cultural pressure expectation, you know, approval. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, was, I was, and I was pre-med, which I think is, I kind of joke, like when you apply uh, to university, once you put like ethnicity, you're on, you automatically puts pre-med, like it's just like a lot of <laughs> choice. Like, pre-selected. Can, like, yes. Pre-selected. Yeah. So uh, I was pre-med for like a year. Then I took a psych class and I, I remember just like totally feeling like this resonated with me. And, I think it was yeah. what I, and then looking back at myself, I see that I was totally, you know, the helping people for me it was always more like the emotional, like I really cared. Like I think I'm a very sensitive person, so I pick up on people's feelings. Uh, there's a book called The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller that
0: and I love. That
1: I book. Oh, yeah, it's it's great. I feel like every therapist. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, most people would get a lot out of it. Especially therapist, but um, she talks in there about like the kind of a lot of times a typical. Like the like therapist type of mindset or personality and or even childhood and things. And I resonated with that of just like I was always very aware, almost too aware of other people's feelings and what they're going through. And so um and yeah. what she talks about in the book who like who else would want to be in a profession who like they're constantly taking care of other people's emotional stuff other than someone who kind of had that growing up. So when I yeah. look at myself and understand myself better as I've gone older, I see that I was kind of much more um aligned to be a, a therapist. So I think when I took that first psych class, it kind of, I was like, Oh, and I remember telling my father and he wasn't against it, but he was a little bit more. He thought going to medicine was, um, more stable, you know, than <clears throat> psychology. So he definitely didn't like say don't, but I remember a slight, a like, few conversations where he was like kind of saying, well, you know, what do you think? It does seem like that's a better route still. And I think I would have liked that. I think I definitely have some envy still of that. Like I like, um, like medical doctor sounds so well cool. i'm actually reading a book right now and the author is like a medical doctor and talking about his experience but um you know i think there's something about that and i did a one-year internship in in my phd at a psychiatric hospital so i think i like mm. being able to say i'm going to the hospital like i would say you know like, yeah like text when i'm on my way to the, i'm gonna go to the hospital now or something i could kind of sure. feel like i was being the, the real doctor so maybe it's still deep right. to me that that's what i was supposed to do or that's like what would make people more proud. Um but yeah, so I think it was definitely when I look at it now though much more who I am to go into the mental health field. But it took me a little bit of time to find that. But then once I did, I kind of didn't look back at that
0: point. Yeah. I mean I think you you made the right choice. <laughs> you're 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 the type of person who can like really do things with mental health and like psychology because because you have those soft skills and it allows you to Practice those soft skills. Whereas in the physical doctor world, you know, things are so stressful that you that sometimes becomes the second priority. Um, From what I hear from like every friend I have who's becoming a doctor right now.
1: Uh, Well, first of all, thank you. That was very kind. Uh, I also like this kind of distinction. I think, you know, it's something, thankfully, as you see in the medical field, they're moving more towards that, like seeing the patient as a whole person, not just as a illness or a physical body and our understandings of like the distinctions between feelings and physical. And I think it's Mm -hmm. so blurry and so, you know, almost arbitrary. I mean, there's something to it, but there's no emotional experience. that doesn't have a physical component. There's no physical thing you go through that doesn't have any feeling with it. You know, it's just, we try to make them so separate, but they're not. And so I think they're realizing that more and more that if you want to heal people, whatever it is, you're healing. If you don't see them as a whole person you're not going to to heal them as much you know as much as you could if you actually saw all of them and so i'm glad to see that in the medical field more and more of a movement towards it's not just the the fluffy stuff or okay it makes it nicer if you do this like this actually heals people it's going to lead to the better medical purely medical outcomes if you treat them with compassion and respect
0: yeah In fact, like in the startup world, which I'm around and very interested in, I'm always watching obviously mental health startups, but there is a rise of kind of like a new field of health startups. I think they're called, I want to say like integrated care startups, where it's like you don't just go to a doctor or just go to a therapist. It's like you have your little chunk of people and they work together and from the physical and mental and medication aspect. Uh, which I think is really cool. And like probably the future it will probably start with just wealthier people who can afford to pay for that. And then, but hopefully it expands to like, you know, general population.
2: You see that in the eating disorder world a lot. Yeah. That was the first time I ever worked on like a interdisciplinary team, I think, um, where you're like seeing a doctor and a psychiatrist and a therapist and like a milieu counselor and art therapist and all that jazz. And I really found it to be like the most helpful way to look at our clients because you actually, you can, there are no holes uh, or less room for them.
1: It's funny you said that, that kind of like that catchphrase, like interdisciplinary team, which I think um, I remember seeing it, especially when I was like earlier in school, it was like a newer, or I mean, it was newer to me, I got even. Um, but it just kind of makes sense. And even, and even like the way we, I think interdisciplinary teams, are, it's going to need to be that. And I, I hope, as you're saying, fires it does become so like, common for everyone. Um, but even the way we, split things apart sometimes you do need to do that to study something but even the fact that we make them such different disciplines you know it's interesting But yeah i think having that integrated team is the only way we're really going to heal people as we're moving forward to see the that's what healing is about but um yeah i think it's pretty exciting to see how it's coming together in different ways that they're trying to figure out how to make that happen because it's always difficult to to coordinate you know different people and, and as you're saying fires can be not expensive it could be expensive mm-hmm. to do that.
2: So. so I'm curious, like in terms of, you know, having your show and your podcast where you have people call in and ask questions about what's going on in their family, kids, whatever. Um, what are some of the trends that you see in like challenges, issues, things that come up the most uh, with the people that call in or the people that you maybe see in private practice um, that has to do with culture?
1: That's interesting. So, um, well, to begin with, yeah, the majority of people I see, even in my practice, are Iranian, uh, okay. and the people that call in are almost exclusively Iranian because they have to be listening live to the radio station, which is almost all in Persian language, except for like basically my show. So, there, I've had I've had several callers that have not been Iranian, but it's like it's usually like a friend who said, "Hey, you can talk to this person," and you know
2: that okay. like, mostly Iranian.
1: So, I have a lot of that's just been a lot of my experience, of course more americanized where they can either understand me at least at minimum or even they usually are speaking english um and then there's also another thing i was thinking of, especially calling in but also in therapy there's a availability heuristic you have, we have to be aware of that of course someone that people that call in my show are not every like person right it's a small fraction of people that will want to call into a show feel comfortable enough you know what you know all the different reasons that might make someone call in. so you have to always be aware of that that this is not Oh, Persian parents are X because the exactly. person called me on my show, talk about X, you know? So I yeah. try to be aware of that too, you know, making generalizations and even be aware of that when someone's calling in, like what would make a mother call in about her 35 year old son, right? That already is a certain type of mother potentially, or the situation yeah. is sort of dire that she's, you know, what, just feeling desperate. There's all those things you you know try to be aware of that. It's not just uh, happening in a vacuum and same yeah. with therapy, obviously, right? You are, uh people that are coming to therapy you would hope it's actually everyone i hope everyone goes to therapy but still it's more than likely you know more certain people are more likely to go to therapy than not. Yeah. and so that also has, has factors. so the availability heuristic also shows up in things like trauma or ptsd which is a very real diagnosis but uh there's a great book that just came out this year by george bonano called the end of trauma um and he hmm. studied trauma for decades now and now he's at columbia university when i was actually in new york i mean it's kind of like it's like a name drop, but I got to uh, meet up with him, which is really kind. He, he took some time out of his schedule. We got to, to awesome. meet each other. But he's been doing, you know, and he's, he talks about in that book how, you know, there's this overestimation of PTSD. Like, oh, mm-hmm. everyone that was around New York in 9 like, we're going to have this like, crazy influx of PTSD cases. And we didn't, you know, people had, you know, experiences, but most people do okay. But I think part of it, I realized reading that book and he talks about this availability <laughs> heuristic is like, well, if you're like a psychologist, you see people who have like PTSD or trauma, you know, a negative trauma reaction coming in. The ones that don't, they don't come in. Like they're kind of doing their thing. So uh, it does does skew you. So again, it's not to say that these things aren't real and very serious and people are going through it, but you can get skewed. So it's just being aware that if I see certain things, it doesn't mean everyone in the culture is going through that. Nonetheless, um, and again, this is so, now saying that I don't want to be ironic and contradict myself because the people that call in they reflect some of the things I see in our culture, which is control. is a very big part of like parenting, yeah. relationships in general. But so again, like a parent that's going to call me is likely going to be a more controlling parent <laughs> most of the time. Like as a few they might not all be, but there could be more skewed that way. But that's what I see big in our culture is trying to control um, our, our kids. Like we think that that's like the way to get something, or in our relationships, which I think is really unfortunate. What I usually tell parents is like. If you try to control your kids, you won't be able to control them in doing whatever behavior you do or don't want them to. Do. You're just going to damage your relationship with them. Like mm-hmm. that's probably going to be the only consequence. of it. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, but I see that happen. Like a lot of the control, a lot of the judgmentalness. So the fact that we're so preoccupied with our image and how we look um, could create so much judgment with in every at every level, from how we as a family, individuals, how people interact. And I think that's so sad. We see so much of that judgment that is causing people to yeah. suffer. Um, you know, stigma really makes people suffer silently and suffer for things that are just being human. You know, it's like, imagine if you cough, although yeah. well, now with COVID, when you cough, you can feel a little bit weird and everyone might be looking at you, but you know, right. normal human experiences, we can be so hurt. I was talking on my show last week about um, like, you know, usually when we think of ending needs, suffering, even myself, I usually think of physical suffering, like uh, yeah. food, water, you know, medical, Uh, illnesses that we have medicine for but i was realizing i didn't focus as much on the emotional even though i think so much in that context and how like people who are lgbtq you know members of the community that feel like they should you know have been made to feel not okay like that's just needless emotional suffering that already in 100 years it's not even an issue if someone is trans it won't even be like a thing i mean i hope that even sooner than that but it's just like that's part of who they are and that's fine they're just like being made to feel so so bad. So I think, unfortunately, I see so much judgment and this, I feel, like you shouldn't be this way. and uh, We talked about this kind of before we uh, got on the air, but this sense of like, you know, yeah, you have to be perfect or idealize and present that image. And then when you're not, and no one is, because none of us are, you feel bad about it. And it really, you know, so I see that so much, which is heartbreaking, both in family yeah. therapy sessions, but then also in the individual, Like you see how much of that has been internalized, like, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not good because I like this or I do this or I want this. And so that's a big one I definitely see.
0: Would you say those things are relatively unique to like Iranian culture, or do you feel like that would apply across like other, like Asian cultures in general or Eastern cultures? I think, you know, and
1: that's obviously, again, the, the going back to the availability, I see it, you know, I see Iranian individuals and families so much more up close. So I see it much yeah. more. But I think that's yeah, pretty common, like in a lot of, Cultures in general, like people in general, I mean, it's part of human culture and societies of like, like creating standards and then judging and saying what's normal and not normal, what's healthy and unhealthy. So I think it's definitely there. You see that, in, you know, yeah, in, in Asian cultures, like hearing a lot of like, oh, if you do bad in school, like your family's gonna like, you know, disown you or be said, you know, those kinds of stereotypes, yeah. which are stereotypes. But I think there's something there that's in the culture, just like in Persian families, there's, there's that as well. So I think it's pretty common that that this is not like a, just obviously an Iranian thing. It's something that we as a culture, like a human culture, I think as well.
2: With, you know, the experience you've had in the field and what you know about psychology and culture, like what do you think is the driving force behind the control that you see in, in your experience, Persian culture, like, where is that coming from? What's the intention? And because I also believe like, I don't think parents are coming into this like I had a kid so I can control them. Like I like I'm I'm well aware that that's not the intention and that the intention has to be coming from somewhere else. And I've always kind of understood it as like a fear complex, like so fearful, uh so feeling not safe, so not knowing what will happen in the future that you try and control as much as you possibly can. So I'm kind of wondering like what do you what do you think is underlying that in a way that maybe will help <laughs> us understand our parents better or young kids understand their parents' intention better. So we're actually talking about the real issue versus what it is that they're trying to control. Yeah,
1: that's a good point. I think I think what you said is is a big part of that. It's like fear or anxiety. You know, usually control comes from anxiety, you know, which um, one of the challenges of being human is that we can't control most things and that can make us yeah. anxious. So that we try to control the things we can or, you know, even if we look at something like, OCD or something like, you know, anything yeah. of that flavor. It's like the sense of, because I fit, I can't control something, I'm, I'm doing this thing that gives me the reassurance that it's going to be okay or that that bad thing mm-hmm. will not happen or whatever. So, you know, control usually comes from anxiety. And to your point, I definitely agree that it's not you know, almost any time that parents are like, oh, I can't wait to control my kid. Uh, it's right. coming from a good place of protecting them, making sure they're okay, safe, successful, all those things. Um, and, and I think it's actually a classic dynamic of parents and kids is one of the main things parents, I think I have to make sure my kids survives. Like they better not like So the kids like, I want to go to this party. And the parents like, okay, but you can die at the party. You know, there might be drugs at the party. They might be, why don't you sit, sit at home. We'll invite your friends. Like, you know, so they want to have control, right? We'll order whatever food you want, do whatever you want. Just have you here. Um. So I know you're safe. And then the kid is like, I want to live my life. I want to experience things. And so it's always going to be this clash, where The parent is so strongly about, I don't want something bad to happen. So I'd rather you avoid that. So just stay, stay home. So yeah, it's definitely, like you said, coming from fear and anxiety. Um, And so, yeah, from kids' perspective, you get to recognize that. Like it's not your parents are just like, I think the way it feels like my parents just don't want me to have fun or like to have a good time, right? They're like, don't do this. Don't do that. And it's like, they're trying to protect you from the risks of what can happen, you know, in their minds. Like, you know, if you do those things, also then the judgment of, right, if people see you doing those things which, you know, that's a big thing. So, you know, they're trying to protect you, but unfortunately it comes off and it is overprotective and it makes you actually not yeah. live your life and experience it. We can do that with ourselves, right? We don't take risks, opportunities, certain things we do. We're yep. trying to be safe and we don't do that. So it's kind of like passing that on. But yeah, I think the underlying of control is almost always going to be anxiety. Like, I don't understand this okay. like, control. Okay, just stay here or do this or don't do that. And it's going to be okay. And, and parents always have a hard time with this because they... In other ways, even it's not about like pure anxiety, the sense of like, well, it's good advice, right? So parents are like, Well, yeah. I told my kid to study, is that bad? Is studying bad? Yes. Like,
2: studying is bad. <laughs> that was gonna be wonderful. my next question.
1: Yeah, it, studying is really good. So advice giving is another kind of related to that. Um, studying is wonderful. It's when we look at advice, I always think it's important to look at a few different things. One is definitely was it solicited or unsolicited? Because right? like any, you know, you can call any person you right. know. I can call someone right now and be like, "Did you do this? Is did you exercise? Did you meditate? Did you, eat? you know, like?" Right. And they can all be good things. Like none of it would be bad. Yeah. things. Even it could be scientifically proven things. But there's just an intrusiveness when we show up into someone's life without them asking us, and we have to be aware of that. So your advice being good or bad is not the indication or like the litmus test of whether or not you should give that advice. That's one part. Obviously we shouldn't be giving bad advice, but there's a bunch right. of different things that go into that. So it's, it's solicitor. as what a big thing. Another thing is your relationship with the person. So if they feel like you understand them, if you get them like those kinds of things are really important. Another thing is like, do you feel like you respect that person's advice? Right. So yeah. you know, if you're walking on the street and someone just yells out something, that's like something, whatever, you know, therapist, you're like, oh, whatever. But if you hear like oh, so-and-so yep. amazing therapist that you respect is saying this, that same thing, you're going to be like, oh mm-hmm. wow that's like good advice like I'm going to take it but um but you know the part of it the relationship to me is so important so if your kid doesn't feel like you really care about them or if you're really mean to them and now you come to give them advice like you know it's not going to get any forget and it there's an irony right now in what I'm going to say next I just talked for the last like three minutes straight but another thing I always tell parents I'm like don't give them don't like lecture your kids like lecturing doesn't work and I think it's such it's a I think it's a lot of immigrant families Persians are just like the best like you know, like, as soon as like the kids like yeah I'm going to study you know, like in farce, like out you know, Like when I was sixteen, yeah. I, and then like no. I, I see it happen in my no. office within eight seconds. The kid is just like scanning around, like totally checked out. And I'm like, yeah. have I always say, have a dialogue, not a monologue. Like if you are just yes. talking and your kid is not responding, it's a bad conversation. That was not good. It needs to be back and forth. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. Tell me. Let I me give you my. What do you think that. of what I'm saying? You know, but like mm-hmm. I said, Persians are just like very good Persian parents are just, like, so good at doing impromptu TED talks like they just, like start like oh really? oh really? Okay. And, like the lights like, it's
2: like I did read one article on this and for those reasons I will go into this.
1: <laughs> one article is like it's like amazing. It's usually yeah, that was uh, anecdotal. Good.
0: Yeah it's 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 normally I've they say or I've heard <laughs> it's not an it's not an article.
1: Or let me tell you about you know so so your uncle who either did the right thing or the wrong thing. It's either like right. a scared straight story or a motivational story. <laughs> it's just like a really uh, it's a really it's, it's funny. But I think, and I think a lot of parents in general Persian parents a lot of culture they think one of our roles is to give lectures to our kids to teach. We, should I teach them the things I know? But not mm-hmm. realizing that just like talking, you know randomly at them, it's not necessarily going to get even that job done. So I always tell them, like, look, if you actually want your kid to hear what you're saying, if you have conversations with them, if you show them you want to hear what they're saying too, they're much more likely to hear what you have to say. But if you just like speak mm-hmm. at them, and that's again what they say, but it's good advice. It's like, it doesn't matter how good your advice is, but if you if you hate someone and they give you good advice, you don't want to hear it. You actually will want to do the opposite. But if you love someone really? and they give you some kind of advice, it could you know,
0: go, go different. If a child is quiet and doesn't really say anything and is considered a good kid, and the parent is happy. You're also, the, the child is also not developing the opinion or the ability to have opinions and make decisions and like learning about themselves, which I think is very common. And I think that's like <laughs> potentially a reason why a lot of people, a lot of Persian people, and not Persian, like Indian, uh, Asian, Asian, whatever follow a specific path and like they're not necessarily passionate about it and like they don't necessarily seem happy but they all seem to end up in the same kind of like (laughs) like career path and like values and like how they spend their money and status and stuff like that as opposed to like maybe they would have I don't know found something they actually care about or like found something that made them unique that would they would enjoy doing uh, spending their life doing And that is another big shame, in my opinion, like, (laughs) it's, it's, it's hard to watch.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, that's a big, um, and it relates to the overprotective part, too. Like, I always tell parents, like, your job isn't to make sure your kids are happy all the time, like, they're feeling good. They need to, like, go through life and feel things. And so uh, I call it, like, a pain prevention parenting strategy, where it's, like, Hmm. The only thing I'm doing is making, okay, that could hurt you. you know? Oh, that friend said something you don't like, we're never going to see that friend again. Oh, that teacher yeah. said something, we're going to switch your class. Like, and it's like constantly approaching life from this mindset of avoiding the pain. And I say, as we have to do with ourselves, with your kids, you have to look at, is this pain that's leading to damage or pain that's leading to growth? Because if it's mm-hmm. damage, yeah, like if someone's mm-hmm. being toxic towards your child and abusing them, absolutely remove them. But if it's pain that actually leads to growth, you're taking away something from them and you don't allow them to go through that. And so a big thing I see in a lot of, Persian families i work with is the parents going back to that control anxiety like i want the best for my child they make all the decisions for their kids from a very young age and going forward oh no do this or don't do that no no you don't like this and the kid kind of becomes dependent on that and then i see a lot of young adults who are now asked, okay now pick a career that you want to do and they're like uh like how much I, I, I don't know, know. like how much to... pick someone to marry and like i have no idea like what's right and wrong and they still want right. their parents mm-hmm. to make it or they're trying to figure it out themselves and so I think parents don't realize that when we make the decisions for our kids, we're sending them a few messages. And one of the big ones is you don't know how to make the right decision yourself. You shouldn't trust yourself to make the right decision. I know. And you don't know. And so they've internalized Mm -hmm. that. Now they're panicking and anxious about making a decision because so many times they got this indirect and direct message that you don't know how to make a decision. And also that you better not make it wrong when it's so scary. So I have to make it for you rather than make a decision and you'll live with it. It's okay that you'll get it wrong sometimes or whatever that means. Mm -hmm. Um, but unfortunately, and again, trying to protect our, our our kids, we can sometimes prevent them from growing.
2: Yeah, I think that's my big appreciation for uh, having American culture in my own culture, just because it allows for that piece of independence and figuring it out. And you're going to try something and you might fall on your face and that's fine. We all do just pick up and let's go. Um, And I really appreciate that aspect of kind of that Western culture type of vibe versus I also really appreciate like the warmth and the love that comes from our Iranian culture and all of that. And, And that our parents are so involved and they actually show that they care so much and so often. But in those moments, yeah, I really appreciate having the balance of both. Because what allows me to still be okay with like making mistakes and being my own person is that Western American side of me. And then the rest of it, I I can take all those positive aspects from the Persian culture. But I feel like there is this idea that, you know, I if I see my kid fail or if I see my child go through something hard and I don't do something to fix it, then I'm a bad parent and I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And so there's this feeling of like, I want to protect my kid and I also want to be a good parent. And both of those things is keeping them out of those situations. But in turn, then we're we deal with issues and then we're confused and lost and scared and, and then eventually you don't have your parents there to make it for you. And that's a scary thought.
1: And it's also, I mean, and they, you know, even they couldn't before, but especially when you're configuring out things are what do you like and what do you want? No one can make that for you, right? I can't exactly. say what you, you know, what, what do you want to have for lunch? I can't tell you what's going to taste good for you. You can only, right? So who do you want to marry or date or what career you yeah. want to take? That has to come from within. No one can make that decision for you because they can't know what's mm-hmm. going on within. And, and yeah, you, you not only you, you learn not to trust that voice, you almost can't even hear it anymore because you never really yeah. hear it, right? It's not really uh, loud enough for you to hear because you're so used to like just ignoring it. And so, yeah, I, you know, I totally agree with what you're saying that, again, it's coming from a good place, but it's not realizing that preventing pain is not always the right thing, you know? It's like the classic thing. And I think it's tough because I don't know what I'd always do in this situation, you know your kid comes like oh i didn't do the homework and it's like midnight and the project's tomorrow like what i do and like a lot of parents are like well oh, i want to be a good parent i'm going to stay up with you and do it yeah. and the kid like falls asleep and the parent finishes it and like oh my yeah. god i'm such a good parent that my kid's going to go to class tomorrow with the finished assignment and they're going to feel good about that but is that you know i think it's not so black and white but i think a lot of times that might be hurting them more rather than allowing them to face the consequence of not doing the work from a young age and seeing what happens and learning from that i actually remember my mom specifically saying up one time and like I had this like, project, and like she does you know, before, like, I mean, printing I think was kind of newer, like having a printer at home, but it, she drew an outline of the continent, of Africa, like almost a like, perfect. And we're up, you know, it's so sweet, right? In a way, but I also think yeah. like, maybe I deserve to go in and like, be, like, I didn't do it. Like, and having the teacher be like, here's the consequence or deal with it. And I maybe would have learned something better than rather than preventing that pain that next morning, you know? So it's another one of those, like, it's not easy, it's not black and white, but it's realizing. Your philosophy is going to have a big, you know, what's your values? Is it never, my my ch- child should never be hurt. That's I think not the right value, you know? Um, but uh, it's easier said than done when you see your kid like sad or upset to not want to like intervene and stop that if you can.
2: My dad actually said the like thing that he learned from parenting me the most, but t- he always says like it took him a while uh, was I used to tell him like, I can't listen to you tell me not to do something because you know it's bad for me. Like I need to run my head into the wall, and then guaranteed I won't do it again. like and that that has become really true for me and and he resisted that. I mean, obviously because he also my two brothers weren't very much so like that. So he's kind of like, why would I have to do this for you now and just let you run into a wall? Why would I do that? Um, but he said like one of the biggest like lessons he learned as a parent, was like some kids just learn through experience. Some do. That's just what it is. And so part of your job as a parent is, and he says it like laughing now and I appreciate it, is like sometimes part of your job as a parent is just like watching your kid do that and then being like, like, yeah, obviously, right? But, like, but like, I think after seeing me in a few situations where I did have to run my head into the wall, but then also seeing I actually learned from that versus all the times they had told me something, he really, like understood that. Because he was like, we didn't practice that as much with your brothers, but with you, we did. And it, it ended up working for you. So he said that was like one of his biggest learnings, which I, again, appreciate that my parents are so willing to like change and adapt as time has gone by. That really is the piece of them that's more like progressive and and down to understand us. And so I appreciate them for that. Um, so it's nice to hear parents say like, through you, they learned something. And that was really cool um but yeah so that just kind of piggybacks that idea of like sometimes you just got the kid needs to just learn through their own pain and experience and what was teaching me it wasn't hitting the wall but it was that I had to deal with the stress and the pain of it by myself and that taught me to grow and so that's what worked for me yeah exactly that part and
1: I think another part of it's that and also, you can hit the wall and you'll be okay. I mean, now, you're fine. Extreme. Like, yeah, I don't, you know, we don't want you hitting your head like, literally against the wall, but right, feeling that you fall and like it's okay. Like, the world doesn't just get back like, up. The anxiety that parents have, uh, and that's usually what it is, like they can't tolerate the negative feeling, so they don't want you exactly. to have to it. it's, like, <gasps> it's like, oh, we've It's like, oh, yeah, like it's just yeah. did to work out and that's okay. Then, like, you keep going. Like, it's not like tragedy, it's not a crisis. But that feeling could feel like if it doesn't go perfect, it's a crisis and that's scary, but it's like, oh, I hit my head against the wall. Yeah, it does hurt. It hurts for a few days, and but now I'm good. And it's like, I know if there's something else that's kind of scary or a challenge, if I fall, I know I'll be okay, even if it hurts for exactly. a while, right? So it also teaches you that resilience of, it's okay for things not to go well, like you recover and you kind of move on. Yeah,
2: just more
0: experiential. Yeah. yeah. As we uh, kind of wrap it up, I'm curious, I just like a final topic or question would be like, I don't know, you're you're such an interesting person that's relatable to a wide, wide variety of people. And I'm just curious, like, what, what are your ambitions? Like, what are you trying to like, what's your, what's your like life goal, if, if you have anything like that? Like, I know it's a, a big question, but
2: I- <laughs> a quick one too. Thank
0: you. <laughs> What's the meaning of life, <laughs>
1: Which I think is a great I
0: actually love that question of
1: meaning of life. But for myself, I mean, I think I've done a lot that I'm proud of and I like, but um, I think there's so much more I'd like to do. So I don't even know if I know all of it. I think something I'd like to do is incorporate more of my creative side. I think I, we had a conversation once together, the three of us. Yeah. I mentioned that. So I'm exploring more and more because I think it's in part of my work, but not as much as I'd like. And it's interesting. I think it relates to culture and going back to it, not making mistakes or not, you know, being too outside of the box. I think I have some of that internalized, you know, and it's hard to turn off, but I think that's something, um, some of my goals from childhood, are like helping others is definitely there continuing. Actually, I'm proud of both of you. And first of all, honored to be on the show. but proud of both of you that having conversations about these topics is one of the ways that we can reduce and eliminate taboo and stigma related to things like mental health and culture and then understanding each other better. And that also brings people together more. And so I hope through, my show and things like that to continue that type of a um, process as well of reducing the stigma attached to mental health, talking about taboo topics so people don't suffer in the dark. Uh, You know, we bring these things to light. So, yeah. And I think also like family wise and things like there's things obviously I want to do there, having kids and being married and all of that. And that's another way I think we can better the world is through our relationships. So obviously when we think of bettering the world. We think of like, contributing something to humanity, which I think is wonderful. And yeah. I do strive to do that. But also I think in our day to day, how we treat everyone around us is one of the ways we make the world a better place. Totally. Kind of cliche, but I think it's very true and recognizing that that has an effect. So every day we should try and can make the world a better place um, mm-hmm. by what we choose to do and choose not to do and all of that. Um, so I hope to continue to do that. Just be someone who leaves, leaves this place better than how I found it.
0: Well, I can confidently say you're doing that. Definitely, uh, very much appreciate your perspective, hearing what you have to say given your platform, your background. We, I know, at least speaking for me and Ida, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and just like offline, like continuing to work together because I think a lot of our uh, our values and goals match up. So, yeah. um, thanks again for taking the time to talk to us, Fahid and I'm. I'm hoping we'll do this again.
1: Yeah, that would be my pleasure. Uh, Again, very proud of both of you that you started this and are are doing great work already, and will continue to do so. And yeah, I would love to collaborate online, offline, and, and be in touch. But thank you for having me. I really had a good time.
2: Thanks for listening to the So What Are You podcast. If you like this episode, please feel free to rate and review and share with your friends. Also, if any of you are looking for a therapist in California, feel free to reach out to me, Ida, through the practice I work for, Therapy Now SF. The link is in the bio.